Well, Billy, thanks for taking the time to do this, man. I've been a fan for many, many years, so I appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. So the first time I saw you live was in 1986 in Biloxi, Mississippi, and um, with uh, David Lee Roth and Cinderella. I don't know if you remember me. I was the guy in the far back with the black shirt. Oh, I remember. Yeah, (laughs) good to see you again. I was hoping you'd remember me, you know? I had ruined one of my bed sheets and wrote a DLR band, Kick My Ass, and my mom was not thrilled, you know? I hope you spray painted it after you took it off the bed. Well, so one of the things I usually like to do is ask an icebreaker question when I'm talking to folks, and it's, uh, uh, what is a question that you get asked so much that if you, whenever you get asked it, you like die inside a little bit? Oh, there's so many. Uh, man, uh, the worst is who, wh- who are your influences? Cause I've said that a billion times and, uh, people just don't, um, they don't uh, read anything mm-hmm. about me or, 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 uh, I know you already did, but I forgive you. Any question about David Lee Roth, that was, mm-hmm. that was, that was 40 years ago. And, and, uh, though I did enjoy your story, um, <laughs> Uh, also, we we did a we were supposed to do a jam in in Hollywood, oh, about ten years, maybe eight years ago, and the fire department shut it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, Dave Lee Roth, Steve Vai, and Greg Bissonette, uh, and um, I, I I posted about it, documented it, told the story. The venue told the story. Every one of us in the band told the story been over and over and over and people people act like it was yesterday say so what happened in florida when you or i'm sorry in california when you uh you were supposed to play a show when the fire department shut it down that that that, i get that question almost every single interview and it's amazing because every question i get this every interview i get the same question over and over and over and over again and uh it's uh i'm just surprised by it because uh uh I, I guess people don't ever see or hear any of those interviews mm-hmm. because I answer the same question. Like, like usually it's about four or five of the same questions, every interview, every single time. And uh, I, I, I'm always polite about it and I always answer, but uh, it's a, uh, it's a little frustrating. Well, I will be 100% honest with you. I have no questions about David Lee Roth, and I have no questions about your influences because, again, I've been a fan of yours for so long. I think I've heard those stories. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Yeah, all, all I'm asking sometimes for people to just look up. And I remember when during MySpace, in your little uh, uh, thing you write about yourself, I wrote my influences. I included every musician I've ever even heard of. Mm-hmm. In my life, you know, just like 15,000 musicians, because no matter who you say your influences are, they want their guy to be your influence. So they'll they'll say, well, what about so-and-so from the whatever band? And I, I say, yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, you know, so it's just a little frustrating. And I do a lot of interviews, so I don't mean to sound uh, negative at all. But like I said, I'm always polite and I always answer anyway, generally. But uh I do appreciate you understanding it. And that's uh, very nice to hear. I totally understand that because the other thing too, is that I kind of come from a different angle. Like, you know, I'm not a journalist, you know, and I don't work for anybody, but you know, this is something I've been 
wanting to do ever since I was a little kid, you know, and sitting around and making up interview questions. And I remember one of the things I used to do is I would read, you know, in magazines, you know, like you know, Bruce Dickinson and all these people. And I'd go, why aren't they asking this question or this question? Well, that's good to hear. It's great. And so, so I used to make up interview questions with the hopes that one day I would get to meet them. Oh, that's great. You see, now, now you, you said uh, you're not a journalist, but you are more of a journalist doing that than most people. Because a lot of people nowadays just are not journalists. They just got a little... Back in the day, before the internet, there were the people that had a little stapled together newsletter that they would put together in the garage. Of course, that's how many great publications started. But and they were and there were uh, more more fans, which we love, than they were journalists. And I understand that and that's that's quite a bit the, the case now. Uh, but uh, but I'm glad you you take that uh, approach because that's uh, I think it's wise and uh, uh, very effective too. Being a fan, like. I, I, I want to know these things. Like, I don't want to know the questions that I've read or the answers that I've read. It's like, I know we were talking about Bruce Dickinson, but like the question I always wanted to ask him was like, what do you sing in the shower? Like, I got to know, <laughs> you know, the things that make me curious, you know, but, um, well, you know, one of the things I always appreciated and was a fan of yours about was, was just your versatility in music and in playing. And I mean, you've done everything from the hard rock to commercial hard rock to progressive metal. I mean, you've done some some jazz. That kind of versatility and stuff and variety, that must, I mean, is that what kind of keeps you going and keeps it from getting stagnant for you? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a time when the FM radio was our go-to for all music. Mm-hmm. Wasn't much on TV. Uh, at all there was no cable tv so we had fm radio usually every city had its own dj who was like a real deep music fan and he would find amazing things and play it for you and they usually weren't bound within the confines of style they would find great music whether it was classical jazz uh, folk rock heavy metal precursors things of that nature and play it for you. So you'd get the uh, uh, Joni Mitchell and then a uh, Bach piece and then uh, uh, some Miles Davis and uh, then the Young Rascals and Three Dog mm-hmm. Night. And, and so we, we listened to all kinds of things. And um, there, there was much less of a balkanization of a divide between styles. Mm-hmm. I remember going to see bands I think uh, Aerosmith opened up for the Mahavishnu Orchestra one time. Oh, wow. That would have been a lineup right there. Yeah. So, and nobody booed anybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody watched the show and it was two different worlds of music, but they, they liked it. Nowadays, I don't think you could have a show like that without somebody getting shot. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of uh, infighting between the genres. And so um, I, uh, growing up, being as old as I am, which is quite old, uh, I'm happy that I grew up in that time period because we heard everything and we liked everything. Uh, uh, or Pre-Beatles, there was all kinds of incredible music in America that the Beatles were influenced by, the Everly Brothers and uh, a lot of uh, even country stuff that they were uh, uh, influenced by. Uh and look what it did to them. I mean, they were, they became arguably the greatest writing band ever 
uh, as far as their popularity of their songs go. So I think that, that it's, it's a good thing to have that. So as a player now, I like to try to sample many different kinds of music. So it's a lot that I like. A lot that people wouldn't think that I like. Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, the one of the Prodigy records I loved. Uh, a, a couple a couple bands or artists from that early, uh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, uh, heavy sampling and heavy synth and heavy electronic mm-hmm. and loops. <laughs> uh, Mazzy Star. Uh, bands that, that, that people wouldn't think I would like, you know, mm-hmm. but I do. I, I did like them. Uh, there was something unique about them. Uh, and but my go-to music is basically rock. So when I get back to that, I have a much broader vocabulary mm-hmm. and a much wider spectrum of uh, uh, styles to pull from to make hopefully make what I play sound somewhat unique. And I think that's a good thing for every musician is to have a, a much broader range. I know some people that all they listen to is one type of music and that's it. They got the blinders on. They don't want to know about anything. They don't want to hear about it. That's not necessarily a terrible, bad thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to really concentrate on one thing, that's uh, is, that could be an incredible thing, you know, that you would know everything there is about one type of music and could do every aspect of it. Uh, so I'm not necessarily uh, downplaying or dismissing that. But for me, uh, knowing a lot of different kinds of music and being able to play in a band and play that style and play that, that uh, there's little nuances to every style of music. I remember when I toured with UFO, we were in Greece and I got a Greek, I got a cassette called Bazooki, My Love. It was a Bazooki is a, a Greek instrument. But the Greek, they, they play at, at unusual scales, different than Western. And I got another cassette on that tour in Spain by Paco de Lucia, who became one of my all-time favorite uh, musicians, a, a flamenco guitarist, absolutely brilliant, grandmaster. Uh, but again, there was aspects of it you just won't find in regular old Western music. Mm-hmm. So things like that. And I, I was an early adopter of all things Indian, uh, Ravi Shankar, uh, uh, we heard about him from Woodstock, but I had, I had a bunch of his records uh, mm-hmm. other than what we knew of him in the commercial sense. Right. Uh, a lot of jazz, a lot of classical music. Uh, for a couple of friends of mine who are musicians who are also classical music fans would bristle when some people would say they listen to classical music because for a time in the uh, mid-80s, it was a status symbol. You know, because Ingve uh, was doing the new neoclassical amazingly. So people would say they listen to classical music just to put themselves in that category. So we always said, okay, so name 30 classical composers. And we could all do it, but, but they couldn't. So it was a way for us to realize who was just uh, being public relations and who really knew what they were talking about. So um, I'd love to uh, someday uh, host a couple of evenings of music and uh out of my iTunes collection and uh, often I have friends over to my house we have an iTunes night we'll go downstairs and I'll play them things they never heard of and blow their mind and uh, it's it's I, I enjoy being uh, spread across the map quite a bit as far as influences go I love that you said that because 
you know, growing up in you know, the 80s and then, you know, into the 90s, uh, there wasn't so much oversaturation. There wasn't that kind of, like you said, that kind of compartmentalization of like subgenres and stuff. Like to me, you know, it was you had like pop rock, you had hard rock, you had metal. And that was pretty much it, you know. But yeah. So it wasn't weird for me. And the other thing, too, is I only had like three friends in high school. You know? So we didn't have like a huge like pack that we ran with. We were more tuned to like, OK, what is a good song? We were really into, you know, Maiden and Priest. But then we also liked Slayer. But then we also liked the Allman Brothers band and, you know, Boston, you know. And so whatever resonated with me as a music listener I considered good and that kind of carried me over into my adult years to be much more open to listening and discovering new bands yeah well we had an interesting thing happen in mr big we put out some pretty heavy songs addicted to that rock uh the daddy brother lover little boy uh some some heavy things and then we had a huge hit with to be with you so at the shows We'd come out and start the show with some heavy, loud, fast rocker and uh, eventually work our way to, to be with you and all points in between. And people were afraid that, oh, no, all the people that come to listen to to be with you are going to hate the other stuff. And all the people that, that are going to hate to be with you. So you guys are in a lot of trouble. We said, well, that's not what's happening. It wasn't what was happening. We see uh, 14-year-old girls. You know, who are playing daddy, brother, you lover, and addicted to that rush. And they're all digging it. And kids in Slayer shirts uh, sing along with the Be With You. So I felt it for a moment there, we were a unifying force amongst uh, music fans mm -hmm. in that we had uh, the, a, a broad spectrum of people coming to our show and everybody kind of liking everything. So from what we could see, we'd look out and see a, a sea of smiling faces and people just enjoying the night. And uh, so that was a, a, a good. Uh, uh, refreshing change to see that. Uh, of course, that wasn't absolutely universal, but for our crowd and our shows, it was quite nice to see. So uh, we felt we we did a little something to take those blinders off a little bit on everyone. Mm -hmm. So the young girls later on became metal fans, and I don't know if the guys in the Slayer shirts ever <laughs> went beyond to be with you, but but God bless them. I, you know, was a, I'm glad they were there. I don't know. You'd be surprised. Like, I remember being a diehard metalhead, you know, as, you know, as a teenager. And then, you know, with my first heartbreak, my first breakup ever, listening to Wingers headed for a heartbreak on repeat for like three days, you know, and just laying there. <laughs> God, the life is never going to be good again. <laughs> you know? So there's something within good songs that resonate, whether or not people are going to admit it publicly, you know, and I think that that's an interesting thing, especially like what you were talking about, like with Mr. Big and, you know, and, and, and you were talking about broad influences. One of the things I remember was, um, was uh, Talis used to do a uh, King Crimson cover of, uh, was it Schizoid Man? Yeah. And that was like, I mean, you're talking early on. So that was kind of also a, a nice display early on of a band that didn't really confine themselves. We we're all over the map on our set list. And King Crimson for me was really probably the the most the first major prog band mm -hmm. uh, from my memory. Uh, I remember when it came out, and I was just coming out of high school, and uh, that was a, that record meant 
a lot to everybody I knew. That was a breakthrough record for a lot of people. And then uh, Genesis with Peter Gabriel, early early records, mm-hmm. Foxtrot, Nursery Crimes, and uh, quite awesome stuff. And there were aspects of it that anyone would have liked. Uh, the King Crimson record, there was a, called, uh, a song called I Talk to the Wind. Beautiful ballad, little flute solo in it, mm-hmm. and uh, brilliant uh, lyrics and melody. But it also was Schizoid Man and uh, a couple others. But uh, the Talos set list was all over the map. We did uh, Bebop Deluxe, uh, The Tubes, White Punkus, White Punks on Dope Kansas, Carry On Wayward Son, uh, Schizoid <laughs> Man, as you mentioned, some Jeff Beck, some Robin Trower, Every Hendrix, Beatles, Stone Song, uh, Bowie, tons of Bowie, Abatha Hoopo, Lou Reed. We did Satellite of Love by Lou Reed. We did, uh, we were all over the place. And we're coming up through a time when the, the genres were changing. The Ramones first came out, or not the Ramones, the, um, the first wave of uh, uh, punk started coming out, which included the Ramones and MX-80 and the White Riot version of Clash. Uh, right. And bands like that. And then, uh, and a lot of oldies too that we would remake and redo. We would do Grand Funk Railroad, Three Dog Night. Uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Neil Young, all that. So we were we were a cover band playing in bars, and uh, I, I, I'm not comparing us in any way <coughs> or form to the Beatles, but so were they, and so were Van Halen, so was ACDC, so was Ronnie James Dio, and all these bands were in copy bands, uh, playing clubs and lounges and gigs, and uh, it was great training for everybody. You became a much better writer, performer uh, uh stage personality when you're up on stage every night doing i've got uh, i've got uh, ronnie james Dio doing uh i left my heart in san francisco bon scott doing to know you is to love you and uh and hendrix played in a show band mm-hmm. was all all covers you know uh, behind that forgot the guy's names uh, but th- th- that that was a lot of people young musicians now would kind of scoff at that thinking you know, no way Ronnie James Dio did <laughs> My Left My Heart in San Francisco. He must have been metal to the core the moment he stepped out. You know, he, he came out of the womb. No, <laughs> we all come from somewhere. And it's surprising. Uh, I go backstage at a Van Halen concert and they're playing Sinatra in the dressing room. I know with Dio, when I latch onto a band, the first thing I'm going to do is like, I want to know everything. I want to have everything. You know, I want the bootlegs. I want the the pre-bands that they were in and this, that, and the other. And I'll never forget the first time uh, it was like Dio. Oh, I forgot the name of his group that he had. Um, that was kind of like a fifties band. And to hear Dio sing Earth Angel, I was going, okay, but you know what? I can hear that because that's where he built his voice. Yeah, I have that recording. I've got all the early. A lot of people don't realize how comp- how, compli- how complex singing those songs were because, you know, it was about pitch and control and this, that, and the other. And then, and then all of a sudden you hear Dio singing Man on the Silver Mountain and, you know, yeah. you know Children of the Sea. And you're like, that's why his voice was the way it was, because he he came up yeah. and grew into that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's very common for uh, artists that end up with a, a significant career to have that as their history. 
they did a lot before they ever went on to the things you know them for. And uh, so that's a, that's a, an interesting point that I think a lot of uh, younger players don't uh, understand. And I think, and it's not that that's the only way or the right way to do it, because some player that's fixated on one type of music and one artist his whole life uh, might become just an incredible player. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I would like to see him listen to a few other things. I mean, if you just played guitar versions of Oscar Peterson piano mm -hmm. and just listen to Oscar Peterson your whole life, you'd be pretty amazing. But Oscar Peterson didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not how he got there. So uh, that, that, that's, that's the only point. I, I would suggest it as a possibility for a lot of other players, but it's not a rule and you can do, and it's your art, you can do it however you want. I feel like I'm starting to see that a little more now with some of the artists that I grew up listening to. Some, you know, some like, especially like the metal bands and like, I mean, you've got uh, Alex Skolnick from Testament who actually has the Alex Skolnick trio where they're like a jazz trio. They put out an album years ago, which was all jazz renditions of classic metal songs, which I thought was great because kind of much like what you said, it kind of shows where that foundation of music came. You don't just come out of the womb playing Sabbath. So to hear bands kind of taking it back to the roots like that is actually really cool. And I hope that that would open up more fans. Absolutely. Well, I have to say congratulations, though, on the new Winery Dogs album. Thank you very much. It was uh, quite uh, overwhelming, really. We just did great right out of the box. It was amazing. Uh, we have ended up, I think, number three album on the national charts for Amazon, which includes all genres, right. which was pretty good. I think Shania Twain was number one at that, that particular week. But <laughs> so, but that's good for her. Uh, so we were, we were pleasantly overwhelmed and surprised at the response. And now at the shows, like I said, we just had three sold out and I'm hearing from other fans, uh, shows that are upcoming that are, they're, they're writing to be saying they can't get tickets because it's sold out and stuff. So, uh, that's a good thing. And it's not only a good thing for us, it's a good thing for music and fans to have shows that are selling out and doing well and records that are doing well. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's our record and our shows, but it's good for all bands and all fans too, because that means uh, music comes back strong. A club has a few sold out shows. That means they make a little money. That means they can fix the place up a bit and get a better PA system in there. Mm -hmm. uh, hire more bands, have more sold out shows. People get used to going out because they go out and have a great time. They want to do it again. And so it's a win-win situation for everybody when there's success. I remember when Michael Jackson was just became huge and a lot of rock guys were complaining, oh, that's not rock. It isn't. Yeah, but when they're done listening to the Michael Jackson record on their new stereo they just bought, they got to buy something else. They can't just play his record. And it might be your album. So, you know, be happy when things do well. That's a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And uh, so for music, I think it's a really wonderful thing. And I'm very relieved to see it, that we're out here doing great business. The record did great, great business. Overseas now are booking us like crazy because they see the business happening in America. Mm -hmm. So they're contacting our agents. And uh, I think we have a date in Greece now. And I saw a possible a few other Middle Eastern dates even where I haven't even ever played before. So that's all good. 
<coughs> everybody wins. Every other band that's putting a record out, you know, they they get they bought the Winery Dogs record. They want to test out their new stereo on something else or listen to something else on their eye, on their on their ear pods or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a it's a really good thing. So uh, we're we're really pleased that the album is doing so well. Not only for us, like I said, but for 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 all bands. I think it opens the door and helps everybody when there's a a rock record that starts to do well. I think that's such an interesting way you spend that. Like it's a ripple effect, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like it take all it takes is someone to throw the rock, but then once that rock hits, then you know it ripples. And I and I always wonder, and not so much in a negative connotation, but. I feel like sometimes artists are so wrapped up in their own art or their own music that they don't think like that. But the fact that what you just said was like, you know, success for us is just hopefully going to open doors or create enough interest for other bands. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the bigger picture. Yeah, because um, we've just come through three years of insanity and uh, and people are trying to get back to a normal life, and people are still reluctant to come out to shows a, a bit, but they get over that reluctance if they think it's something they really want to see, and they come out, and uh, we still keep some protocols in uh, in uh, in force, you know, as far as getting close to people, uh, shaking a lot of hands and things like that. We'll do a fist bump instead, only because you want to limit the possibility of getting sick. I would do that anyway, whether there was a pandemic or not, because <laughs> when you're, when you're traveling and being exposed to people, you get exposed to a lot of things every year at the NAM show, a famous musical instrument show that happened. They would call it NAM thrax. People would get so sick after that show. Unreal. I mean, I was victim of it several times where, you know, we, we almost thought about going to the emergency room. We were so sick, but it was the flu. Some from from Madagascar or some 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 place. Some guy flew in. And, hey, Billy, shook your hand, and I went like that. And there you go. Yeah, I got it. Uh, so we're a little more we're a little more careful. But we were careful before any pandemic. And uh, so, uh, but people are a little bit uh, still a little bit cautious. They got scared horribly by a lot of uh, uh, media that told them we're all going to die and we're all going to you know we're going to end up back in the stone age again uh didn't happen uh so uh it takes a while to get over that fear and i can understand that completely and i don't dismiss the danger of uh uh being sick or getting sick in any way shape or form uh uh, but uh now we see things opening up uh it's uh it's been tough on clubs because how can you keep a, a club empty for two or three years and you're paying rent and electrical and gas utilities and property tax, and you got no shows. So we lost we lost a lot of venues. Uh, we lost a lot of crew guys who couldn't sit around and wait to get to go out to do a band because they got rent to pay, so they had to quit the biz and go somewhere else. Buses, bus drivers, trucks, all that stuff that we need. Uh, so uh, to see it start to come back, because that's my whole life. That's what I do. I'd say. I often say I, I play live, I live to play live and I play live to live and I couldn't do it for three years. Mm-hmm. So I'm very happy to be back and, and really feel for other musicians who've been through the same thing. So I'm happy to see a little success by us might actually help out the scene, a, a, a couple of molecules. Uh, I would be happy to see this 
other people benefit from it as well. Because uh, I come from a time when the music scene in 1985 was just on fire. Sunset Strip looked like the Mardi Gras every night. Bands everywhere, bands getting signed. Talus, we had a truck, sound, lights, crew, secretary, agent, manager, office. We all had apartments and cars and we and, and no record deal. We were <laughs> we made just on live shows alone all over mm-hmm. the place. So uh, that was an amazing time. I'd love to see that again, especially for younger players because it allows them to get up on stage and really do what they're supposed to do. H- Home Alone in front of a camera on YouTube, some, some amazing talent, but I haven't seen them up on stage right. doing it. You know, it's like you can punch a bag all day, but when you get in the ring, it's a, it's a whole different story. That guy punched back. To kind of go back to what you were talking about was because there really was no other options for uh, even like, like I said, for, you know, I grew up in, in the, you know, right, you know, before technology and stuff. And so, you know, if you were in a band, you know, you either played uh, a garage party, basement party, or you played at like the shittiest club that would actually book you because you were under 21. And, but that was what you did. You had two yeah. options, you know, and. I see a lot of talent, like you said, online and whatnot. And, but I'm like, you know, I'd like to see you in a listening room. Uh, if you uh, can get up on stage and perform those songs, sing them and play them and mm-hmm. convince us that we're having a good time. Uh, under controlled condition, you don't know how many takes somebody did. Uh, so when you see some actor do some amazing scene, that was take number 146. <laughs> And edit number edit number fifty four, you know, to get what you see there. But a, a musician, now we're 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 right live in front of your naked steaming eyes, as David Lee Roth would say, uh, uh, doing it for real and uh, singing it for real. And a winery dogs, we have no tracks. There's no fakery. There's no pitch correction on the vocals, uh, on the recordings. Uh, it's all real three guys sitting in a room writing songs working on parts going and recording them the same day uh so i think that has led to uh, an organic feel to the record that has helped move it along i believe in all honesty when i first heard the first winery dogs album i liked it but i just remember like it didn't really connect with me for some reason and then the second one came out and kind of the same but then for all of a sudden like this one came out and it was just like Bam. And all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is what I was looking for. Now I went back and listened to the previous two with, and, and I came away with a totally different focus on it. Interesting. I hope that wasn't an insult or anything. No, no, it, it's not uncommon. And I remember bands that I'd get into, uh, Jethro Tull, This Was, wow, great record. Nobody liked it. Didn't go anywhere. Stand Up, their next record. Wow. Really great. Uh, and the next record was Aqualung. And everybody was crazy. And I thought, okay, it takes a couple of records for people. They have what's called cultural lag, where it takes people to catch up with what's going on. Same thing with Santana, the first record. Oh, I love that record. Then the next one. And then it wasn't until a couple of records in that they finally broke. And a lot of bands were like that back in the day. Uh, more modern times in the business. If, you, if your first record doesn't go 
uh, quintuple platinum, they give up and go somewhere else. Uh, where before record companies would develop an act and let them play and do their thing. And uh, uh, eventually they would uh, find that record that uh, really made them huge. The first couple Van Halen records, all those Van Halen fans love, but nobody really knew them until then when Jump came and Hot for Teacher came. Oh my God, everybody went crazy. So it's not uncommon that the first couple records it takes people a while to, to get to get it. And often when I first discovered Deep Purple, it was their uh, Fireball record. And, uh, and I discovered them because I heard Ian Gillen sing on Jesus Christ Superstar. So I went back and I got In Rock. And oh, wow, what an amazing record. Why didn't I hear this record first? Yeah. So it's not, a, it's not uncommon to have that happen. And I think it's also kind of the way that music is presented to people now, because, you know, now you have Spotify and iTunes and Apple Music and you can hunt and peck and do whatever. But, you know, back in the day, you know, I would go to the record store and I'd buy an album like if the cover looked awesome, you know, and then like like it might be like the the third or the fifth Iron Maiden record. And then all of a sudden you're listening to it and you, then you go and buy the second one. And then you go by the new, you know, it was like you kind of just discovered them as you went through. And yeah. I feel like now it's a little harder to do that. But at the same time, as a music listener, I feel like it, it gives me more of a, a footing to kind of, you know, follow a band's progress, but then to also find that connection, you know, if I haven't found it right away. Yeah, I agree. I did that with dozens of bands and just get in and find one record that opens the door and then you go back. So, uh, well, I'm glad that this new record by the Winery Dogs was uh, served that purpose for you. And you went back and re-listened. I love the first record. I always say of my uh, my big three at this point are Eat em and Smile, Mr. Big Lean Into It, and uh, the first Winery Dogs record. Now, I, I may have to move Talos 1985 into that and make it four. And then maybe I'll make it five by the third winery dogs record as well. So those records that I, that I was involved in that I feel very strongly about. And if somebody asked me, so what do you do? I would probably play them one of those records. So when winery dogs first got together, you know, obviously it was, it was a big deal because, you know, a lot of classic hard rock fans like myself, I was like, Holy shit, Richie Kotzen, Sheehan, it was like Portnoy. Would you say that at this point now that be, you know, that, uh, you've grown with each other over time that this feels more like a solid band. It, it sounds like more like a solid band as opposed to like a project. Well, we, from the beginning, our goal was to have a band, not a project, mm -hmm. not a side project. Uh, my advice now to young players is always when people ask me, you have any advice for young players? Yeah. I get three things. Number one, get in a band. Number two, get in a band with songs. Number three, get in a band with songs that you sing. You don't see bass players, guitar players on American Idol or, or The Voice or America's Got Talent. So um, we uh, didn't want it to be a project. We wanted to also uh, another reason for that was as fans, all of us are fans. Uh, I hated to see a band you know, put out a record, and then they're gone or they change a member. That was always heartbreaking. Sometimes you've got no choice if somebody passes away or some other tragedy, whatever. you got to replace somebody, sadly. But uh, when, whenever it did, it was never the same band for me. It was, I would maybe get into them again in a new light, uh, but it was it made it tough. Uh, there's a 
a few examples of that happening where it was extremely successful, but mostly as a fan, man, it's, you'll find a dividing line. The band, when that guy was in it, and the band, when he wasn't, and the fans loved it here, and the other fans loved it there, and so, so it's sad to see that. So we wanted to be an actual band instead of a project, and uh, uh, right from the get-go, we went over, Mike and I went over to Richie's house, started talking to him about, what well, you know, the whole idea, and within 15 or 20 minutes, we were, we were Richie said, well, let's go into my studio and start, and there was a bass there and, some, and a set of drums. We started writing right away. And the way we wrote was together as a band, three guys in a little room. Next record, we did the same. We toured the three of us together. Uh, we had a wonderful time together. We, we were very lucky uh, to have good chemistry, musically and personally. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's a big deal. A lot of bands have great musical chemistry, but they don't get along. And sure enough, they end up hating each other, whatever. A lot of bands get along great. But nobody really likes the music so much. So we were we were very very lucky to have that happen. And it's difficult to determine what it is that does it. It's just some abstract, intangible. Uh, I I can't put my finger on what it is, but I know sometimes I've been in a situation where on paper it looked great. Let's get this guy and then that guy and this guy. You get together. Mm-hmm. Nope, doesn't work. <coughs> so it's um uh, we're very lucky that we're having some kind of a chemistry there that. That helps that uh, come together. I also think that it affects the the music output too. I really do think that it's projected. Like if you are a band that doesn't get along, that comes across. Could be psychological too. In that I do know a lot of bands that we found out later on they all hated each other, and we loved them the whole time. You know, so it's 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 a little hard. But uh, you know, and also there's no there's no oath you take before you do an interview. And you're not uh, uh, on trial. Uh, so you don't, what you say in an interview doesn't necessarily have to be the truth at all. You can make make things up all you want and mm-hmm. say how everybody's getting along and how wonderful it is, where in fact you hate each other. And, you know, so I have to give that, you know, some people may suspect that's the case here. I'll, all I can say is that it's not. And uh, we we have fun on stage. We have fun backstage. We have fun on the bus. We have fun when we're traveling. We're out together having a meal. Uh, so that's that, that, that's the way it goes. But but I, I do know of, of bands that would their public relations look like they're the best buddies ever, and find out mm-hmm. later that they would they'd be on separate tour buses and separate hotels, and <laughs> we wouldn't speak to each other at soundcheck. And so <laughs> I but I wouldn't I you know I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want that you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Even with huge success and tons of money, of course, it, it's, it's hard to say unless it actually happens to you. I don't know if I'd want to live like that. I got to ask, what is what is one album that Billy Sheehan feels like everyone should own and love? Uh, Red by King Crimson. What a masterpiece. I went on a uh, half-working vacation one time. Uh, and went away for about three weeks back in the CD days. And I took one CD with me. It was read by King Crimson. <laughs> Listen to it every night. It was just so great. There's, there's such a broad spectrum of brilliance on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, there are many other records I could I could say this about. 
uh, many, many very well-known classics, Sergeant Peppers, of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, something by, uh, the first Chicago record, unbelievable. But, uh, I, I know personally I've done this when I did have access to only one CD. I, it was read by King Crimson, <laughs> uh, John Wett's bass and bass tone. Oh God. He was a monster. Seriously. Spectacular. I sadly, I never met the guy, but I, I, uh, communicated with his wife online a couple of times to say hello and, mm-hmm. and offer my condolences when he passed. Uh, but uh, what a great voice too. I just loved his voice. And Robert Fripp, I had the great fortune of uh, becoming acquainted with and becoming friends with. We uh, were playing in Japan and I had a little dressing room. We all had our own little dressing rooms and somebody knocked on my door and said, Hey, Bill, and, and I'm getting ready for show, so I don't ever, you know, I'm, I'm trying to focus. I'm, I'm a little annoyed. Like, <laughs> I go, what, what, what? I'm getting ready. He goes, somebody here wants to see it. I go, well, who? They, and, they, and they go, Robert Fripp. And I go, what? And there he was. I couldn't believe it. I'd never, you know, and he just, uh, he must have heard things I said in my interviews. And uh, mm-hmm. he, he was uh, uh, just a wonderful fantastic gentleman and so he wanted to watch the show and he couldn't sit out in the audience because the people would be you know coming up yeah. to him so we gave him a chair on the side of the stage so he was 20 feet from me the whole show sitting there and as i'm playing i'm thinking oh i got that from robert Fred. oh there's a king crimson lick oh there's something i got and he was on the side and we're of course doing our shenanigans on stage and laughing and have a great time we went out to a, a, a the hotel bar after the show and he told me the whole story of how they made the first Crimson record. We hung out and what a, and if my friends back in Buffalo, I grew up and went to school and knew that I was hanging with Robert Fripp, they would have, would have died. It was just, he was such an icon to all. What a wonderful, great man. <laughs> and then we did a G3 tour in uh, Europe and he was the third G and I was another, we had just a wonderful time together. So, uh, but that doesn't even influence my, um, uh, my choice of that as a record. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just such, such a masterpiece of an album. Uh, uh, the one song, I'm trying to think of song titles. I apologize. It's uh, No, go ahead. It was um, A Starless. Song, oh, Star- yes. My God. It is, a, it is a comparable to a classical piece of music in its compositional strength. Oh. Just... And how they create a theme, move off it, move back it, change it, bring it up, and the whole thing changes. And the whole ending comes with a with a reprise of that original theme. Uh, it was just so brilliant. And Bill oh. Bruford on drums, amazing. So that would that would be my one. Have you heard this? Have you uh, heard or seen this latest incarnation of Crimson? No, I haven't. It's hard for me sometimes to get into new versions of older bands but if uh but i know anything robert fripp's involved in i will probably like so at some point i will uh dip my my foot into the toe of that pool and see and test the waters well so and then finally if you could play for one band for just one night who would it be and why uh i'll say after talking about King Crimson and all this uh, esoteric music, I'd say ZZ Top. Okay, 
unexpected. What is it about ZZ Top? Billy Gibbons is a grandmaster. <laughs> and uh, he just is such a depth as a person, a character, and a musician. The real thing, no joke. He lives it. He doesn't portray it. He is it. And uh, to be, uh, and I've had the great uh, fortune uh, of, uh, of uh, jamming with him. And uh, he played on one of my solo records too, came over to my house and I was I had to pinch myself. But uh, yeah, I play in ZZ Top. It would be, uh, it'd be right. They were such a huge influence on Van Halen. I remember when we were working uh, with uh, Dave so many times, yeah, a little more ZZ Top. You know, and I know Hoffer Teacher is basically, I heard it on the X, you know, uh, it's a huge influence on them and a huge influence on a lot of people. And they did a record called Rhythmine, which I dare anybody to put on and not be blown away. It was uh, this big subwoofer, huge uh, hip hop tones, but it's ZZ Top and it's mind-blowing so great it's a, the one of the greatest stereo test records i've ever heard there's some songs on this that will tear your stereo apart but yeah it's easy top i would love to do that that is amazing well billy i really enjoyed talking to you man and i i hope that this interview uh didn't run you off <laughs> no i enjoyed it myself thank you very much for having me on and i hope i see you in atlanta <laughs> <laughs>